The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Week 11 edition of PFTPM, the midweek discussion, always on Wednesday, except next week. Wednesday will be the Mega Picks podcast because it's Thanksgiving week. No PFT Live Thursday or Friday, but a special edition of PFTPM coming at you on Black Friday. We'll tape it in the morning and we'll do our best to get it posted before that. Jets hosting the Dolphins game happens on Amazon Black Friday afternoon. By the way, I have a special guest today. You may be able to see her back there. Macy is is on the floor. She's kind of blending in. I've changed the lighting a little bit in here. I'm experimenting with different things. I got my ring light that I used to have in my wine cellar, although I got to do something about the reflection. I think the reflection's back behind me. We'll work it out. It's a work in progress. It's always a work in progress. So let's make some progress on what's happening in the NFL. We start with the news out of Cleveland from this morning, the stunner. Deshaun Watson, we knew about the ankle injury coming out of the game against the Ravens, and he played through it. We didn't know that he had what they're calling a new shoulder injury, a fracture. And it looks like it's, you know, when you have, they call it a subluxation, a dislocation, the joint pops out and goes back in. And the issue is what damage was done on the way out, what damage was done on the way back in. It sounds like this was a fracture of the structure into which the joint fits. Not a huge fracture, but a problem. Now, the calling a new injury, and without access to medical records or MRIs or and, and hey, you know, someone explained to me today, a lot of times you can't even see this thing. It's possible it's been there. And I'm not laying blame on anyone. All I'm saying is given the nature of this injury, it may have just been that he got hit on Sunday and it aggravated it in a way that caused them to take a closer look and they saw this fracture, or maybe the fracture was slight, and it got a little bit worse. Because this goes all the way back to week four, when they played the Ravens the first time. He was medically cleared, and those were the two most unfortunate words used by any team all year long, saying he was medically cleared. That created an expectation that he would play, and it created frustration by some outside, and maybe some inside the organization, that he was choosing not to play when he could have. Now, If it was this fracture that had been there all along, he shouldn't have been medically cleared. Regardless, he's not going to be playing again for the rest of the 2023 season. And they say he'll be ready to go for the start of 2024. And I'm sorry, but I got to do something about my text messages that come through my computer while I do this. Some days, there's a lot of them. This, I have a feeling, is going to be one of those days where you hear the ding multiple times. So I apologize in advance for my dinging. So there's a lot going on now as we move forward with the Browns. And it's unfortunate that the trade for Deshaun Watson and the contract for Deshaun Watson will be judged in part by the fact that this injury wipes him out for the rest of the season. But that's one of the inherent risks for any quarterback. So when you make that move, $46 million a year, five-year contract, every penny guaranteed, and you give up three first-round picks, 22, 23, 24, and three mid-round picks, you're putting all your eggs in that one basket. And if that basket breaks, you got a problem. That's one of the reasons not to do this. Regardless of anything about Deshaun Watson and the off-field issue, it's a lot to give up financially, and it's a lot to give up by way of low-cost draft picks. It would have been six different players, six opportunities to get guys who could end up being a key part of your nucleus going forward. They put all the eggs in the basket. The basket has broken, and now they're through two or five years, 40% of the contract, and what have they gotten in return? Nothing. 
Next year, it's going to be more pressure on everybody to get more out of Deshaun Watson and to keep him healthy. If next year is a washout, then we are very close to saying the trade was a complete and total failure. Not quite on the level of Herschel Walker, but pretty damn close. But still, chapters left in this book. All we know is chapter one didn't work out well. Chapter two didn't work out well. Chapter three, four, five, we'll see. Will he be there beyond the expiration of his current five-year contract? We'll see. Now, remember, one of the reasons this is year two, not year one, is because he wasn't suspended for a full season last year. And there's been that chatter. It's been lingering. It's out there. The idea that some owners didn't want him to be suspended for a full year, wanted him to be suspended, but not so long that it let the Browns push the whole contract back a year and treat 2023 as year one. So 24 would be two, 23 would be five. It would run through 2027. As it stands, it runs through 2026. So they're stuck. Three more years, 24, 25, 26. 46 million fully guaranteed per year, and they don't have the benefit of this young group of players who could be ascending, assuming that you exercise the draft picks properly. So they got a problem. Now, what are they going to do? Mary Kay Cabot reported earlier today, she's with the Cleveland Plain Dealer, rookie Dorian Thompson Robinson, fifth round pick, who started that Ravens game. He's back under center. And it's a little surprising because PJ Walker was the quarterback when they beat the 49ers. No small feat. And he was the quarterback the day they almost beat the Seahawks. No small feat. But they see something apparently in the rookie that causes them to believe that the interests of the team are better suited by putting him under center. And I'll say this in his defense. I don't think he thought he was going to play that day against the Ravens week four. All week long, Deshaun Watson says, I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. They believed he was playing. Dorian Thompson Robinson believed Watson was playing. Remember, I've said this before. I got a text just after 5 o'clock Eastern that Sunday. People on the team were thinking, what's going on here? Why did Deshaun Watson say he was going to play? Why didn't he play? And there was some confusion and frustration about it. And then we find out he was medically cleared, supposedly. So that just adds to this mess. But it helps explain why Thompson Robinson maybe wasn't as ready as he would have been if he's thinking all week long. Deshaun is going to play. I'm getting some practice reps. That's great, but I'm not playing. Now, there's Macy walking around back there. Now he knows as of Wednesday, and he probably knew last night. And it is amazing the Browns kept this under wraps. Usually this is the kind of thing that a team uses as currency with the insiders who are in a position to influence people on a given team. We never get a bad tweet. We never get any criticism if we hand to Shefty or the NFL media crew five minutes before the announcement, this news, and that would have been huge. That would have been big engagement and, you know, a lot of, Hey, Oh, congratulations. You broke the news. Yeah. They called you five minutes beforehand or they texted you and told you what they were going to announce in five minutes. Surprised they didn't do it. I think it's just evidence of how kind of shell shocked the Browns were that now Deshaun Watson's done for the year. So the question becomes, what can they do by way of external quarterback options. We wrote about this at PFT. There aren't many free agents out there, and the ones who are out there are out there for a reason. There are some guys who are retired or not officially retired, but they're retired like Matt Ryan. Phillip Rivers hasn't played since 2020. Tom Brady's out there. It's kind of compelling to think about him playing for the Browns. Kind of fun to think about him riding in on a white horse to try to save the season, but I don't think that's in the cards. The possibility of either Ryan Tannehill or Jimmy Garoppolo being released and ending up with the Browns is something to at least consider. You would say what's in it for the Raiders or the Titans to release Garoppolo or Tannehill respectively. There's one way that this benefits them. And this would be a violation of the rules if this happened, but so what? I'm sure things like this have happened from time to time in the NFL. If the Browns tell the Titans, we'll start with them. If you release Ryan Tannehill, we'll claim the balance of his contract on waivers and you will avoid the remainder of his $27 million salary for this year, which as a practical matter is guaranteed because he's a vested veteran. If he gets cut during the season, he files a claim for termination pay. He gets the rest of his money. If he's claimed on waivers, the Titans are free and clear. The Titans are off the hook. That's a benefit to the Titans. Now, if they just let him go and they think, well, no one's going to claim the balance of his contract on waivers. Why the hell would we do it? If he passes through waivers, they still have to pay that money. 
and he can make whatever he would get as a free agent, a little double dip action. If the Browns are interested in Tannehill, the thing to do is approach them. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's within the rules. It probably isn't. But you don't want to win games or you don't. That's the attitude some teams have. You let the Titans know through a conversation that never happened. If you release him, we'll claim him on waivers. So then the Titans say, well, we can save, you know, 12, 12 million bucks is 12 million bucks. We can kick that over to next year on the salary cap. We can do a lot with that money. I think it's 12 million, the balance of the contract for the final eight weeks of the regular season. So that's a possibility. And if I'm Ryan Tannehill and I want to play, yeah, hey, Titans, let me go. Same thing for Jimmy Garoppolo. Hey, I want to play, let me go. Now, there's an even greater benefit to the Raiders if he would be claimed on waivers because the balance of his contract this year is guaranteed and there's $11.25 million next year fully guaranteed. The Raiders would avoid that as well. And they benched him. They're done with him. So if the Browns would say, wink, nod, conversation that never happened, burner phone to burner phone, if you release him, we'll claim him on waivers, that would be a way it would happen. So those are a couple of alternatives that are viable. It would take a violation of the rules, but all's fair. When you've got a team that's six and three, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying I condone it. I'm not saying I would do it. But I've been around this business long enough to know that the rules get broken. And I've been around this business long enough to know the conversations that shouldn't happen do happen. Tampering is rampant. It's easy to justify breaking a little rule here or there because you just say everybody does it. And this is a simple one. We're just letting them know. Hypothetically, if you would release your starting quarterback who's been benched, who's due a lot of money over the rest of this year and or into next year, if we're talking about Garoppolo, we'll claim him on waivers. And the Browns have the cap space to do it. I think Tannehill makes more sense because you would want to be done with Tannehill after this year. What's the point in having $11.25 million fully guaranteed to Jimmy Garoppolo for next year? There's no reason to have that because Deshaun Watson's coming back. Now, looking at the issue of backup quarterbacks more generally, and I think of Josh Dobbs as the prime example here. He was available in trade by the Cardinals just before the trade deadline. The Vikings got him for a sixth-round pick. And this is the bargain basement deal right now in the NFL. Player plus a seventh-round pick for a sixth-round pick. What is that? That's nothing. You're in total crapshoot range of the draft at that point. You're hardly giving up anything to get the player. Why would the Cardinals do that first and foremost? Why would they do that? If Kyler Murray gets hurt, it's Clayton Toon time again, and we saw how that went. Why would you give up Josh Dobbs for one round upgrade? And why weren't more teams involved in it? As I mentioned on PFT earlier today, Josh Dobbs told me himself after the win over the Falcons that his agent told him it was either the Vikings or the Browns who would be trading for him. There was a second team other than the Vikings. Dobbs' agent thought it was the Browns. I did a little digging today. I'm told it ended up not being the Browns. It was another team. Don't know who but it wasn't the Browns. Why weren't the Browns in it? They only have themselves to blame if this doesn't work with Dorian Thompson Robinson or PJ Walker or whoever they happen to grab off the street, Dresser Wynn, Tanner Morgan, or maybe Morgan Tanner, Brett Rippon. And I've communicated with some folks about the attitude and the mindset and I think a couple of different factors go into this. One, there's laziness. And I don't want to accuse coaches generally of being lazy. I'm not saying anyone's lazy. You can't make it in that world if you're truly lazy. You have to work. But it's a question of how much work you're going to put in. How much work do we need to put in? How much work do we want to put in? We've got a guy, next man up, ready to go, knows the system, knows the personnel, knows the plays, knows the strategies, knows us. We know him. It's simple. It's easy. It's the path of least resistance. Or you can acquire a potential upgrade who has to be taught the system, who has to be taught the plays, who has to be taught the names of his teammates, who you may not know at all, no connection to him quite possibly. A lot of elbow grease goes into that path. That's the path the Vikings embraced. 
That's the path the Browns shun. Now, now, if this had happened a few weeks ago with Deshaun Watson, would they have traded for Josh Dobbs or Jacoby Brissett? Maybe. But at the time the trade deadline came in, well, we didn't know what was up with Deshaun Watson. I think it was reasonable at that point to assume you better have plan B ready. And you better ask yourself, is Dorian Thompson Robinson or P.J. Walker the best plan B we can have? Or should we try to get somebody better? Should we try to get Jacoby Brissett? Hey, Washington's having a fire sale. They're trading away Montez Sweat. They're trading away Chase Young. Let's call them up. Let's get Jacoby Brissett. What would it take? Fourth round pick? Sold. Josh Dobbs. Well, we know something better than a six plus Dobbs and a seven would have gotten it done with Arizona. The other element is this, and it's a cousin to laziness. It's complacency. It's excuse making. It's accepting the reality that, for example, what they could have done in Minnesota. Hey, Kirk Cousins is out for the year. Season's over. That's that. Let's just go forward with who we have and we'll make our plans for 2024. They didn't do that. They weren't content to do that. They weren't content to squander what at the time felt like an opportunity to be relevant this year. And it worked. Look at the Jets in contrast. The moment Aaron Rodgers tears his Achilles tendon, four plays into 2023, the Jets just decide to stay the course. Now, I think Rodgers' intent on returning and the fact that he kind of hovers over the organization, takes a lot of oxygen out of the room and is a big personality, I think that made it very difficult to even consider making a trade for a Ryan Tannehill, making a trade for a Kirk Cousins, getting someone to upgrade over Zach Wilson, knowing that that guy potentially gets sent to the bench when daddy's home. But, I mean, let's be realistic. Rodgers is coming back next year. Well, do we think they're going to fire Robert Sala? Do we think they're going to fire Joe Douglas? If Robert Sala and Joe Douglas were the coaches that were and, and GM that were present when Rodgers arrived and probably wouldn't want one or both of them gone for next year? I don't think so. I think those guys are safe and they've been safe. And again, I'm not putting it all on that because I do think the most overlooked factor in this entire question of what the Jets are doing or not doing at quarterback is the reality that Aaron Rodgers wants to come back at some point. And the irony here, and I think I'm using the word correctly, I never know. But the irony is their desire to keep a light on for Aaron Rodgers is basically going to cause them to fail to pay the electricity bill and the light's going to be off. That's kind of where the Jets are right now. And let me continue on that while we're talking about backup quarterbacks and the New York Jets. Rodgers has targeted mid-December to come back. Now, we wrote the other day, based upon a source in position to understand the dynamics and the situation with the Jets. Week 15, Commanders, Christmas Eve, that's the drop-dead last minute he could come back as a practical matter and make a difference this year. And they'd have to be 7-7 seven and seven or 8-6 and six entering that game. Are they going to be 7-7 seven and seven or 8-6 and six entering that game? They're 4-5 and five now. Bills this weekend, we'll talk about them coming up. Dolphins, Black Friday, they could be four and seven. They have to win three in a row for Aaron Rodgers to even have a chance. And even then, if Rodgers comes back in their seven and seven and they win the last three games, 10 and seven going to be good enough this year? I don't know. There's 11 teams right now in the AFC at or above 500. The Jets are four and five. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be enough to get one of the playoff spots, even if Rodgers comes back and they win three in a row and finish 10 and seven. So this weekend at Buffalo, Friday against the Dolphins are critical games for the Jets. They need to win at least one. They would be in greater position if they win both. And I think they're screwed if they lose each of the next two. The Bills may be screwed if they lose on... Sunday against the Jets. And we spent an hour yesterday on PFT Live talking about how that game ended on Monday night, who's to blame, where they go from here. Little did we know that Ken Dorsey would be fired that same morning. Chris Sims and I spent an hour today talking about the problems with the offense, whether or not Dorsey deserved to go, whether or not Sean McDermott deserves to be on the hot seat. Chris and I disagree about that. It doesn't matter whether we disagree or agree. 
At the end of the season, ownership's going to do whatever it does. And I think right now, the temperature is sufficiently high in Buffalo that change is going to be necessary. We've seen regression. Five and five is not good enough with that team, with that quarterback. And they've got games upcoming after this week against the Chiefs, the Jets, the Cowboys, and the Dolphins. How are they going to get to 10 wins? When you won five out of 10 games, you're going to win five out of the final seven when you play the Chiefs, the Eagles, the Cowboys, and the Dolphins down the stretch? I don't think that's happening. Chris and I did agree before the season on our belief that the Bills wouldn't make the playoffs. And of course, Bills Mafia lost their minds about that. And rightfully so. I hate making preseason predictions and I hate doing preseason power rankings because everybody thinks this is the year their team has a chance. We're zero and zero. Don't anybody rain on our parade. We want to feel like we have a chance. How dare you make us a non-playoff team? How dare you put us anywhere but in the top 10 of the power rankings? But then reality sets in one game becomes two games becomes 10 games. And here we are with the Bills at five and five. Are they going to get better? with Joe Brady's the offensive coordinator. He was there. He's part of the problem. He's been the quarterback's coach there the last two years. What's he going to do that is so dramatically different than what Ken Dorsey has done? What's Josh Allen going to do that's so dramatically different than what he's done under Ken Dorsey? Their solution is we're going to try harder. And their confidence comes from the fact that they've done it before. I don't care if you've done it before. You're not doing it now. Something's wrong now. And maybe removing Dorsey from the equation is the magic elixir maybe they'll wish they'd done it sooner i just feel like sean mcdermott knew he had to do something he had to do something to stave off what was feeling inevitable and what might still be inevitable but i'll say this if they pull this off if they get to the playoffs after making the change from ken dorsey to joe brady at this juncture of the off season or off season never mind regular season don't mind me i just work here regular season you know what's going to happen you know what's going to happen? Think about this. Let's say the Bills all of a sudden figure everything out. Let's say the Bills offense starts clicking like it never has before. Let's say the Bills win enough game to get to the playoffs. Let's say the Bills win a game or two in the postseason. They don't have to get to the Super Bowl. Just get there and get to the championship round. Joe Brady going to be around next year? Will that be enough to get Joe Brady a head coaching job? I don't know. That's the problem with having a defensive head coach and a franchise quarterback. Every time things go well, got to go find another offensive coordinator. And you might get Brian Dayball. You might get Ken Dorsey. And for the Bills, they're going to hope Joe Brady is closer to Dayball than Dorsey. But if he is, he'll be closer to Dayball in other ways. He'll be a head coach somewhere else. This is not good for the Bills. And I don't take any... What's up, Macy? I don't take any delight... In saying that, I mean, I, I do take some satisfaction from properly analyzing and communicating a situation. And Chris and I have kind of been all over this. I'm not going to take any pleasure if people get fired at the end of the day. But the reality is, look, from the outside, I've seen this coming. So from the inside, what do you do? Do you push back? Do you waste your time pushing back on the people on the outside who are saying, you guys better turn this around or you're going to have a problem? Or do you say, you know what? That dumb shit may have something here. Yeah, the rest of the time he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But on this one, he might know something. He might be onto something. Maybe we should do a critical self-analysis here as to whether or not we need to do something. I've never gotten the impression before the firing of Ken Dorsey that the Bills understood the problem that they've created for themselves. And now we'll see if they can find a way to fix it. Meanwhile, the special teams coordinator sent 12 guys out onto the field for the field goal try that was no good, but they got a second chance because of the 12th man. He's still employed. Just a weird situation right now in Buffalo. And it makes that Sunday game, 425 p.m. Eastern, Bills hosting Jets, a critical, compelling train wreck of a game because somebody is going, they're both kind of wrestling on the cliff right now, right on the edge of the cliff. Somebody's going to be falling off the cliff. Not completely off, but they're going to be falling. They're going to be stumbling. It's going to be tuned in next week to see which way this person goes. Whoever loses that game is going to be in deep, deep danger of falling off the cliff for good.
Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The Patriots have already fallen off the cliff. It doesn't matter. The only question at this point continues to be how they're going to clean up the mess. Last week, I said, we have to treat it as a given that Bill Belichick won't be back in 2024. The question is, how will the divorce happen? Resignation, retirement, firing, mutual parting, or he gets traded. And, you know, one of the big things we do here is we try to interpret what's happening and explain to you what to look for, where the puck may be moving. Others can tell you where the puck is. We pride ourselves on trying to tell you where it's moving. And we acknowledge that sometimes we're wrong. On this one, though, I think I'm right. Rewind three weeks and three days. That was the day that Ian Rappaport broke in with the report on NFL Network's pregame show that Bill Belichick in the offseason signed a lucrative multi-year contract. So that just adds context to these current discussions surrounding Bill Belichick. Well, what the hell does that mean? What's the context? You know what the context is? Somebody wanted to get the word out there at a time when it felt like Belichick could be fired during the season, that it's going to cost Robert Kraft a lot of money, so much money that he wouldn't do it. That was the message someone was trying to send. They were trying to take a fire hose to the talk about Belichick getting fired during or after the season by saying, well, you know what? It's going to cost a lot of money. Maybe he's not going to do it. And my initial reaction was, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If Kraft is going to move on from Belichick, he's going to move on from Belichick. So, Take it three weeks beyond that initial report. Rappaport again on the pregame show before the Colts-Patriots game in Germany. He said, as it turns out, the contract that was signed in the offseason was a new contract, which means Belichick was a free agent, which means he could have gone anywhere he wanted. He stays with the Patriots on a two-year deal. Two years. So if they fire him, they own for one year. That's a write-off. That's nothing. You want to move on? You want to be relevant again? You got to rip off the Band-Aid and go. The other thing that Rappaport said that confirms the stuff we've been spitballing about, the Patriots aren't inclined, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they're not inclined to fire Belichick during the season because they think they can get value for him after the season. They can trade him. This first came up when we were talking about the possibility of the commanders. I think the Buccaneers are a team to watch. I think the Panthers are a team to watch just because with David Tepper, you never know what the hell he's going to do. There are other teams out there that may look at this and say, we could be better with Bill Belichick. We could put the proper guardrails in place. So Belichick, the GM, doesn't make it harder for Belichick, the coach. We've got a quarterback that maybe Belichick could win with. So I think the purpose of the leak three weeks and three days ago was to get people to quit talking about Belichick possibly being fired during the season. I think the purpose of the leak from three days ago to NFL media owned and operated by the 32 teams with the Patriots very influential in the overall broadcasting committee and the overall content committee, network committee, whatever committee it is. A lot of power from the Patriots as it relates to the NFL's in-house network. I think the message the team wanted out there was anybody who's thinking about hiring Bill Belichick after the season has to deal with us. And here's where this goes from here. It's not something that's going to play out after the season. This is something, and this gets back to what I was saying earlier about phone calls that never happened, communications that shouldn't occur, the Browns letting the Titans or the Raiders know if they cut their veteran quarterback who's on the bench, the Browns will claim him on waivers. By getting this out there now, the Patriots are inviting a discreet phone call, possibly through intermediaries, possibly multiple levels down from ownership, with appropriate buffers in between, making it known that 
Team X, Team Y, Team Z has interest in acquiring the rights to employ Bill Belichick. And I think everything would be lined up before we get to the end of the regular season. This is the time of year that owners who think about making changes make their decisions about whether or not the current coach stays and they make decisions about who gets pursued. So anybody out there between now and week 18 who's considering firing a coach or has already decided to do so, Belichick's in play, but you got to deal with the Patriots. And if you wait until after the season's over to initiate the process, you will have waited too long. This is problematic if it happens this way. Don't get me wrong. I can be more clear about the fact that this shouldn't happen because what it does, it prevents a realistic search from occurring. It prevents the Rooney rule from being complied with in spirit. It can be complied with in letter because what happens is, and I'll just use the Buccaneers as an example. Let's say they don't make it to the playoffs. They fire Todd Bowles. They can't just call the Patriots the next day and say, hey, let's make a deal for Bill Belichick. They've got to comply with the Rooney rule. They've got to do a real search. So they would go through the motions of a search. And then at some point it would be appropriate and timely to pick up the telephone and call the Patriots. I submit to you that they will have already done that. And they will already know exactly what's going to take to get Bill Belichick. And they will know what it is going to take to pay Bill Belichick. It's all going to be worked out in advance if it happens after the season ends. Now, if he just gets fired after the final game of the regular season, that will mean the phone never rang. And they don't want to sit around and wait to start their own coaching search while they wait for someone to blink and someone to call and someone to say, hey, we know you're going to fire the guy anyway. Why don't we give you a draft pick and you can just hand him to us? And I think the key is going to be how many teams get involved. The more teams involved, the more likely somebody steps up with something real that the Patriots would get in exchange for Belichick. So I'm not making any firm predictions on what happens after the season. All I'm saying is this. The rest of the league is on notice. If you want Belichick, if he's on your wish list, you got to deal with the Patriots. And even though it defies the rules in spirit at a minimum, if not in letter, you better work something out with the Patriots before we get to week 18. Let's answer some questions. PFDPM policy, the refs continue to throw flags for unnecessary roughness. Defensive receivers hit to the heads, et cetera, and players duck at the last one-tenth of a second before impact, even though it's unavoidable. We saw Jeff Heath throw his body sideways to avoid flags three years ago, but nobody else, how can it be avoided? Well, in some situations, it can't be avoided, and the league doesn't care. The league is so committed to protecting the health and welfare of receivers that if the guy does put his head or neck area in the path of a defender who hits him while the receiver is still defenseless, it's a 15-yard penalty. It's a fine, potentially, although that would be a good defense. Look, I went in with my shoulder. I went in with my side. I specifically tried to avoid hitting him in the head, but he ducked into it. But remember when they first became extra sensitive to hits to the head of defenseless receivers? It was right after that moment, October 17 of 2010, where there were three hits like five minutes apart in real time. And I always have to sit and remember, it was Dante Robinson hitting Deshaun Jackson. It was James Harrison hitting Muhammad Massaqua. And it was Brandon Merriweather hitting Todd Heap. It all happened, boom, boom, boom. After that, they really started to pay extra attention. They made it a point of emphasis. They told the officials for a while, err on the side of throwing the flag. Then they changed that language because they don't want to encourage the making of any errors whatsoever. Now, with roughing the passer, they still use when in doubt. That's not in the rule book for hits on defenseless receivers, but we see the flag fly when there is doubt. We see the flag fly when it is close, and that's just one of the risks you take when you go in to hit a receiver. And uh, it's all part of this effort to, to do their best to make the game as safe as it can be for the folks who are in a defenseless posture. When you're in the process of trying to catch a pass, you should not be hit in the head or neck area or with the helmet of another player.
PFTP and Posse, why don't the Cowboys ever use creative different uniforms? They would likely sell very well. Well, don't they do the white helmet and then they get the white jersey and they use the helmet with the red stripe on it this week? I love that one. That reminds me of 1976 when they had that all season long. I think the Cowboys are doing all right. I think the Cowboys don't need to get creative. I think enough people buy Cowboys stuff as it is. that You don't need a lot of different options. They're still going to buy their Cowboys stuff. PFTP and Posse, one more. Will we ever see the massive increase in the salary cap? We've repeatedly been told is coming from all the gambling money in the new TV deals. Based on the infinite ads, we are bombarded with 24-7, 365. Shouldn't it go up a lot really soon, like setting new pay ceilings for players? It, it's been going up. And they had to offset the pandemic losses. I think it's going to go up dramatically this year and next year. This is the first year. This year is the first year of the new TV deal. So this is the year there should be a big bump between the TV deals and the gambling partnerships we should see a huge bump. But here's the reality. It's always negotiated. We think it's a mathematical formula. It's not. The league and the union come together and they decide what the salary cap is going to be. It's driven by various factors, but they decide through negotiation each year what it's going to be. But this is a year where it should. It should go up. Rob Buffalo. Hi, Mike. Offbeat question. John Cooper is the head coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning and won two Stanley Cups. He practiced law like you. Has the, I, did, I, did not, I did not know that. Has there been... Or are there current any NFL head coaches with a law background who have had any success? Is there any crossover from the law that would help an NFL coach? I doubt that anybody actually went to law school and then got into coaching. You got to put your life, you got to put your focus, you got to put everything into coaching to have a chance to rise to the top of the profession. I'd have to sit and think about it. I'd have to research it. I've never really considered it, but there isn't anyone who comes to mind and I'd like to think I'd remember if there was some reformed lawyer that wandered into coaching. And I feel like I'm missing someone now that I think about it. And it's making me feel horribly inadequate because I can't remember who it is. And it's probably on the tip of my tongue and I don't even realize it. So thanks for that question and giving me all this angst. Anyway, I think that there are some transferable skills because when you go from coordinator to coach, when you're coordinator, offensive or defensive, it's all X's and O's. When you're head coach, there's more to the job. When you're head coach, you're the face of the franchise. You're the communicator. You're the one that is constantly taking questions from reporters. You got to know how to stick handle your way through difficult situations. You got to know how to speak extemporaneously in a way that placates the fan base, placates the media, but also doesn't give away any of your secrets. I mean, that's one of my big problems with Bill Belichick. He doesn't have to be the way he is. He's so guarded. He's so concerned. He's going to open his mouth and the secret code to beating the Patriots is going to fly out of it that he doesn't say anything. It's just grumble and grunt. And he, he's like he's being, it's like he's being interrogated. Name, rank, and serial numbers are you're getting from him. Contrast that with Nick Saban. He will give you a very engaging press conference. He will act like he's saying all sorts of interesting stuff. And then you go back and look at the transcript and you say, God, God didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. It sure sounded like he was saying something. He was animated and his inflection changed and used his hands and say anything. So there's a way to do it. There's a way to communicate. There's a way to give, this is the key. I had somebody ask me this when I was practicing law. I had a client that was not getting great coverage in the local newspaper and was very standoffish about giving information. I said, you know what? There's got to be some stuff that you don't care if they know. There's got to be some stuff that actually helps you if they know. Let them do their jobs. Give them something. And then they'll leave you alone. They're just trying to write a story. They don't need to crack the code for your Kittner boy readout safe. They just want something to fill up the, 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 the spot in the page. And, you know, for all the brilliance of Bill Belichick, he really is an enigmatic and compelling figure because when it comes to emotional intelligence, as it relates to dealing with the media, he has none. It's amazing he's lasted as long as he did. And the reason he has is because he won. If he hadn't won, he'd have been gone before the end of the 20 or 2002 season. It's, it's 2020, but it's not 2002. I never did that. It's 2002, regardless. He would have been gone by then. He would have been gone by the end of his third year. And Tom Brady, and we've talked about this before, to a certain extent, allowed the Patriot way to thrive. He's not more responsible than Bill Belichick, but it wouldn't have happened without Brady. 
submitting to that same attitude that we still see from Belichick directed to the media. And it's too late for him to change. He's not going to change. He'll go somewhere else and he'll coach and he'll be the same guy he's always been. Because when someone trades for him, if that's what happens, and pays him, he'll view that as validation of what he's always done and he'll just keep doing it. James M, Dr. J144, I saw a player in college fumble in the process of getting injured on a play last week. It's always bothered me that guys need to maintain possession through an injury. Why would you think, what would you think of a new injury can't cause a fumble rule? I don't like it. You know why? How do you ever police that? How do you ever know that it, that, I mean, we kind of know it when we see it, but I just, I think it happens so infrequently, it's not worth the trouble of trying to come up with language and interpret it and apply it and get it right all the time. Fumble's a fumble. However it happens, fumble's a fumble. And if it's a fumble, it's a fumble, period. That's pretty profound. If it's a fumble, it's a fumble. Put that on a bumper sticker, why don't you? RB Roughnecks, do you think Jimbo Fisher's firing is going not only to be a performance-based firing, but also because of NIL paying players violations? No evidence yet. It seems odd to fire him before the regular season is over in the beginning of a giant con a gigantic contract and after a 50-plus point win. Well, first of all, it's not at the beginning of a gigantic contract. It's five years in. And last year, they were five and seven. And this year, they were five and four going into that 50-point win over Mississippi State, which they expected. Mississippi State fired their head coach, too. I can't think of a time when, after a game, both head coaches got fired at least at the college level. It's probably happened at the end of a season at the NFL level where it was already known it was going to happen. And I think that's the key with AM. They already knew they were doing it. I just think that they know the drill here. They've got the money to put together a program that is among the best in the country. And they're willing to spend it. Some people will say, oh, well, there's no way they can pay a lot of money to a coach now that they're paying $76 million to Jimbo Fisher to walk away. There's more where that came from. Like Homer Simpson, when he first started losing hair, flashback episode, he's got a full head of hair and a clump of it falls out. And he says, oh, there's more where that came from. Yeah, there was. There was. And Texas A&M has more of it too. And they're not going to go bald for a long time. I think they're going to swing for the fences. I don't think they fired Jimbo Fisher and paid him 74 million or 76 million or whatever it is to walk away to just hire some no-name guy. And, and that's why we talked about this today on PFT Live. That's why I think they are going to call Dan Campbell. Why wouldn't they call? Why wouldn't they call? I know Lions fans get triggered, and I know people on social media who just don't get it want to call me out and call me an idiot. I'm right on this one. There's too much money in college football to not try to get the biggest name possible, to not try to get the guy that would create the greatest excitement for the fan base and success for the team. And Dan Campbell would do that at Texas A&M. And given what NFL teams are paying coaches right now, colleges are in a better position. It's a lot easier to pay big money to the coaches when you don't have a line item in the budget to pay players. Another one from Dr. J144. I get that teams have injuries and bad luck. However, teams like Arizona and even New England and Carolina have continued to compete despite a talent gap. The Giants don't look like an NFL team and haven't all year. What's the fallout going to be in New York after this season, in your opinion? Well, look, a wise man has said repeatedly over the last 30 years or 40 years, coming on 50 years on ESPN, once is an accident, twice is a trend. Three times in a row now, John Mara has fired a coach after two seasons. It was first Ben McAdoo, Went to the playoffs his first year, got fired during his second year. Then it was Pat Shermer. Then it was Joe Judge. Two years or less for each guy. It's like last year didn't even happen. Brian Dayball, coach of the year. It's like it didn't even happen. Dayball addressed it today. He was asked what ownership thinks about what's happening. And he said, like everybody else, nobody's happy. But it really has been bad. The question is, can John Merrow resist the temptation to make wholesale changes again? It would be the four straight coach that gets two years or fewer. At a certain point, it is the organization. At a certain point, it is ownership. You can't fire the owner, but sometimes the owner should be fired, or sometimes the owner should just back the hell off and let the grown-ups, let the professionals, let the ones who have been trained and experienced in running a football operation do so. 
World champ, the Seahawks have the following upcoming stretch of games, 49ers, Cowboys, 49ers, Eagles. Is this amen corner of games, the most important stretch of games for Geno Smith and his NFL career? I've been fascinated by this four-game stretch that begins next Thursday night on NBC, 49ers at Seahawks. The next Thursday night on Prime, it's Cowboys hosting the Seahawks. Then it's 49ers again, then it's Eagles. Yeah, this is it. This is murderer's row. This is whatever cliche you want to use. And this is going to tell us whether or not the Seahawks are a contender or just a team that's going to be jockeying for the seventh seed or maybe the sixth seed in the NFC. They win two of those games, maybe three of those games. They win two of those games. Okay. They win three. All right. They sweep them, which I would not play that parlay if I was inclined to bet, and I'm not. They win those four. They may be the one seed in the NFC because they already hold the tiebreaker with the Lions. So it's a tough stretch. And remember, that contract, and this happens all the time, the initial numbers that get leaked are caca, to use my current favorite word, and I can't help but just something about that word that makes me want to laugh. But three years, 100 and something million, it's a one-year $28 million deal. They can move on anytime they want. Now, he played well on Sunday, got a lot of praise from Pete Carroll for what he did in the fourth quarter, but that was the commanders. Let's see what they do. 49ers, Cowboys, 49ers, Eagles. Delete Brow, big Broncos fan. Not seeing the glasses half full now that they've won three in a row, beating along the way both the Chiefs and the Bills. Are the Broncos in danger of being just good enough to not get better? As they sustain wins against lauded but flawed opponents and are unlikely to enter the postseason, aren't they squandering draft standing or is winning more important to a losing culture than any one player? Sean Payton... On PFT Live, right after he resigned from the Saints in Los Angeles, we had this conversation about tanking. And he hearkened back to the game between the Saints and the Buccaneers, final week of 2014, where the Bucs were up 21-10 at halftime, and they tanked to get the first overall pick in the draft. They took out half of their starting lineup. It's hilarious the way Peyton tells the story. He says, I've got people who speak to me in my headset that 26 is in for 22. 31 is in for 30. He said it was like a bingo game. They wouldn't stop of all the different, this guy's in for this guy, this guy's in for this guy, this guy's in for this guy, this guy's in for this guy. They took out half their starters and the Saints won and the Bucs got the first overall pick in the draft and they got Jameis Winston and some would say that's punishment enough. Peyton's point is this, you should never do anything but try to win. That that is the culture you're trying to build, that if you're not trying to win, the players sense it and you lose them. I think what they're doing now lays a great foundation for the future. And, hey, Russell Wilson has turned it around. Last year was a blip. Compared to this year, that throw he made to Cortland Sutton, pivoting, turning, spinning, dropping it right in there for Cortland Sutton to catch the ball at the front end of the goal line, incredible. The little flips he makes to Samaje Pirine. Vikings got their hands full on Sunday night. Sean Payton's turning this team around. And they were as low as you could get when they gave up 70 points in week three to the Dolphins. And look at where they are now. I would say enjoy the victories this year, even if it causes the Broncos to draft in a lower spot than they otherwise would. It's laying the foundation for success sooner than later in Denver. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Skull Vikings 407. What's Macy doing back there? What are you doing, doggy? 
You all right? <laughs> Is it better for playoff hopes for the Saints to start Jameis Winston over Derek Carr? No, no. Look, Derek Carr initially came in with a, not Derek Carr, excuse me. Jameis Winston initially came in in place of Derek Carr on Sunday in Minnesota with a no Fs given attitude and turned a 27-3 game into 27-19. But what ultimately happened? Two interceptions and another ball that could have been picked off. I think we saw why Jameis Winston is no longer an NFL starter. He has a role to play. The starter gets injured. But I think Derek Carr is still the way to go. And also, they're tied to Derek Carr financially through next year. They're not going to bench him this year, I don't think. Mac Moon, do you think the winning coach of this Sunday night football matchup will be in the leader house? That's a Sims phrase for coach of the year. I think it's still too early. I think D'Amico Ryans right now makes the best case because Sims and I talked about this earlier today. Coach of the year is kind of loosely determined by looking at the generally accepted preseason expectations for a team and then seeing how far they were exceeded by the performance of the team. Compare what we thought we were going to get to what we got. And with the Texans, Sims and I both said before the season, that's the one team that's not going to make it. You look at any team in the AFC and say, that team's not going to make it. I see you back there, Macy. You see any team that's not going to make it, the Texans are the first team out. And then maybe the Raiders. And look at where they are at five and four. They make the playoffs. I think D'Amico Ryan's needs to get serious consideration. Kevin O'Connell deserves consideration if the Vikings make it. Dan Campbell, if the Lions end up with the one seed, deserves consideration. A lot of great candidates for coach of the year, but a lot of football left to determine who ultimately gets it. Chris Hatfield, can the Broncos beat the Vikings? Yes. Next question. Here's what I'm concerned about. I think I mentioned this on PFT Live. Last year, the Vikings at Buffalo won a crazy game, down at the wire, excitement, Kirko chains, shirt off, dancing on the way home, heroes welcome at U.S. Bank Stadium the following Sunday, and the final score was Dallas 40, Minnesota 3. There's a potential for a letdown here, and it's even more pronounced because the Broncos played Monday night, got back Tuesday morning, next train's coming in five days. Can they put this unlikely win behind them? and refocus on the hottest team in football right now who won five in a row. They can do it, and I suspect Sean Payton will be up their butts all week about not having the letdown. Look at what happened to Minnesota last year. I guarantee you he will tell that story to them. Last year, it was Minnesota, week 10. Look at this play. Look at that play. Look at all this crazy stuff that happened. And then here's what happened the next week. I could see him. I could envision him standing in front of his team showing the Vikings highlights for that crazy, remember that fourth down play where Justin Jefferson somehow caught it and then the Vikings go for it fourth and goal and they don't get it. And then the next play, Josh Allen fumbles and it's recovered by the Vikings. I mean, just craziness, craziness. And the next week, the Vikings lost. And you show the clips of the Cowboys steamrolling the Vikings the next week. That's what you, that's what you do. That's the little stuff you do to get your team to guard against the letdown. We'll see if it matters. Brian Lau, week 13, 49ers Eagles will not be flexed to Sunday night in order for Fox to keep that game on their network at the 425 p.m. window. Is this going to be a trend of moving forward for CBS and Fox to protect their marquee matchups? They, always, they already have. They already have. And I think there's another question about flexing. I think I scrolled through them quickly earlier about why. Eh, maybe that was the question. Usually I don't read these, and that was just one that caught my attention, but not closely enough because I, I didn't remember it properly. I thought it was a question about flexing generally this year. Since flexing started in 2006, both CBS and Fox have had the ability to protect a certain number of games. And still, at the end of the day, it's an NFL decision. I haven't seen the full rules yet. My concern is that the NFL has kind of painted itself into a corner with the flexing rules that come along with Thursday night and Monday night flexing. The protections afforded to CBS and Fox complicate dramatically the flexing process to the point where it could be an issue week 18. Apparently there's some rule out there that if a divisional game has already been televised in prime time, let's say, and let me try to think of a prime time divisional game where the rematch comes week 18, Ravens Bengals. Ravens-Bengals play week 18. Do they play week 18? No, it's Ravens-Steelers. Never mind. Shit. Well, anyway, 
if there's been a, I'll just, I'll just abandon that and move on. When did Cowboys Eagles was late afternoon? Um, anyway, if there's a late afternoon divisional game that's already been played in prime time, I think they can't play it again in prime time. So if we get to the end of the road and, you know, you get that playoff play in game that we're looking for, and they're all divisional matchups in week 18. If for some reason that divisional matchup has already been played in prime time, it's off the table. Even if that's the only one, you know how it kind of works out most years. doesn't always work out that way, but most years it works out to be, Hey, look, look at this. There's a playoff play in game from whichever division last year, it was Titans Jaguars. So that's something to keep in mind. And I just think generally this new expanded flex possibility makes it harder for any games to be flexed. And we've yet to see any be flexed. But remember, Monday and Thursday come into the mix later in the season as well. Anastasia Williams, will the Giants draft a quarterback if they get the number one or number two pick? They absolutely should. Is Daniel Jones done being the guy for the Giants? Well, they've got him under contract for one more year fully guaranteed. That doesn't stop them from drafting a quarterback and putting him on the bench. It's the Alex Smith, Patrick Mahomes situation. Now, if there would be a regime change in New York after the season, that makes it even more likely they use that high pick on a quarterback. A lot of it depends on what they think of the quarterbacks who are available and whether or not they are in position to get that quarterback and whether or not there's somebody else that wants to trade up to get that quarterback and what they would offer. A lot of moving parts here, but it looks like they're going to be in position to get one of the top quarterbacks. The question is, will they, and I don't think having Daniel Jones in a contract will stop them from doing it because again, it was a two-year deal. You know, whenever, remember this, when March rolls around and the offseason rolls around and they start doing contracts, the initial reports you're going to hear from the information robots are caca. We'll give you the truth. We'll get the full details and we'll tell you what it really is. Daniel Jones is a four-year deal. It's a two-year deal. After next year, they can move on. Tyler Herbert, this is an interesting question. If you could show someone one NFL game, if they've never watched football before, what is the game that you would show them? That is a hell of a question. What is the game I would show to someone who's never watched football before? Wow. I would want it to be a Super Bowl. And I would want it to be a Super Bowl that had a great finish. You know, I think back to Super Bowl 13, but when you go back and watch those old games, it really is amazing how different it is in comparison to today's NFL. So if it's somebody who's never watched football but plans to keep watching football, I wouldn't want to give them a skewed representation of what football is really about by showing them something like Super Bowl 13, which is one of the great games ever played and which was you know, a Super Bowl that kind of flipped this narrative that the Super Bowls all stink. Because really back in the 70s, the Super Bowl was kind of like, gee, we hope we get a good game, but we know we're not going to get a good game. And then boom, here comes Super Bowl 13, and it was a barn burner, 35-31. So a more modern game that I think was very compelling, I mean, that Saints-Vikings 2009 NFC Championship was a hell of a game. There have been plenty of great Super Bowls recently. Bills-Chiefs, the divisional round game a couple of years ago. I don't know, but see, the fact that it's somebody – this is the challenge. They've never watched football before. You want a game that's going to draw them in so they watch more football. You don't want to ruin them, right? You don't want to give them the best game ever right out of the gates because then they're going to be like, well, why am I watching this? You showed me Super Bowl 51, 28-3 and the great comeback. Man, this is boring. Give me more of that, that game you showed me that made me interested in football. So – I think there's a complicated psychological exercise here that I don't have the time or the ability to engage in that relates to the era of the game and how good of a game it is. I want it to be just good enough that it makes the viewer hooked on watching more football. JC Carm, is Derrick Henry a Hall of Famer? I saw that one earlier and I pulled up the all-time rushing list. 8,960 yards for Derrick Henry. He's 39th. Now, he's got more rushing yards than a couple of Hall of Famers. He's got more rushing yards than Jim Taylor. He's got more rushing yards than Larry Zonka. He's got more rushing yards than Terrell Davis. He's got more rushing yards than Leroy Kelly and John Henry Johnson. 
Different eras, different times. Floyd Little, 6,300 rushing yards, and he's in. Steve Van Buren of the Van Buren Boys, 5860. That was with the Eagles from 1944 through 1951. I first became aware of Steve Van Buren because Fran Tarkenton somewhere said or wrote when he was a kid, he played with football cards and Steve Van Buren was a favorite player. I've never forgotten that. Anyway, um, no Super Bowl appearances. They've never made it past the AFC Championship game. He's 39th overall right now. Now, working in his favor is the fact that if there will be an assumption that some guys from this era of football at the running back position are going to get in, I mean, I think Frank Gore is a no-brainer. He's third overall in rushing with 16,000 yards exactly. I think Derrick Henry has a chance. I just think he has more work to do. I think at a minimum he gets needs to get to 10,000 yards, which would put him exactly at number 31 on the all-time list, just ahead of Ricky Williams. I mean, we don't talk about Ricky Williams as a Hall of Famer. Otis Anderson isn't in the Hall of Fame. Will Marshawn Lynch get in? Maybe. Eddie George, he's never been discussed as a Hall of Famer. He's got over 10,000 yards. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. I think for now it's a no. He's got more work to do. But if he would get in that range between Joe Perry with 9,700 yards and O.J. Simpson with 11,200, maybe because of the era, if the voters feel compelled – like, hey, we haven't put any running backs in in a while. What about the running back? You know, Frank Gore, who else? How about Derrick Henry? Maybe he's got a chance. But I just, my gut tells me he's got more work to do. All right, let's see if I have more questions to answer here. <laughs> you know, some of these are good, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to skip over them. Uh, some of them are funny. I'm going to skip over them. Here's one. Life question. From Curtis E. Flush. I'm sure that's his real name. Maybe it is. I feel bad saying that if it is his real name. All right, Curtis. Life question. How do you stay productive while working at home? I started a work from home job recently and find myself easily distracted by chores, pets, sports media, LOL. Tips on staying focused. Well, I get, let's see. She's still hanging out down there. The garbage truck's outside. I'm surprised she's not barking at it. Um, I've been working at home for so long, I don't really know what to tell you other than you just do it. You just you do what you have to do. And I've learned to work very quickly. I've learned to write very quickly. I've learned to think very quickly. I've learned to be very efficient with my time. I've learned to be very protective of my time so I can constantly, when I, you know, all I need is 15 to 20 minutes and I can get a story done for the most part. Some of them are longer and take a little more time, but a lot of the stuff, you know, like the Sean Watson story today, the news broke right as PFT Live was ending. I came straight downstairs. Ten minutes later, story was up. I I just think you learn through time how to wall yourself off. And I'm fortunate that my wife fully supports and understands what I'm doing. She gives me the space while I'm here to kind of be in my bubble, to be in my zone, and to understand when I'm here, I'm working. Like, I'm not just home hanging out watching TV. I'm not home and available to do whatever needs to be done during the course of the day. I'm at work. I just coincidentally happen to be at home. So you need that as well. You need, you need folks who live in the house who understand what you're trying to do. And you need to have a space that is kind of your own little fortress of solitude, like Superman and or Susan Ross's father. That's your sanctuary, as he said, about the cabin, cherish the cabin. But uh, I digress. I definitely digress. Um, and you know what, if like, sometimes I'll go down to the barn and, and work in the daytime, but I, that's usually a nighttime place for me to just kind of make sure I can focus, but you just have to focus. You got to find a place where you have minimal distractions. It's on you to minimize your distractions. Don't be checking PFT every five minutes. We'll, we'll, we'll settle for every 10 minutes and you just do it. You just do it. And the thing that should drive you to do it is the fact that you have the gift of working at home. When you remove from the equation, having to get in your car and go somewhere and go into a place where you're constantly distracted by coworkers, constantly distracted by small talk, constantly distracted by the box of donuts that somebody brought in. There are, I think there are far more distractions if you work in an office than if you work at home. And there's noise and there's this and there's that and there's the forced socialization that you feel compelled to engage in. There's the stupid little fights 
over who ate my chicken salad out of the refrigerator. No, working at home is great. So courtesy flush, appreciate it and just work to stay as focused as you can because working at home in my view is far better than working in an office around other people. And at least as far as the other people who would be working around me are concerned, probably better for them that I'm not there to have to deal with. All right, you're done dealing with me. My God, we went for an hour today. Didn't plan to do that. Next week, I'm going to try to go 90 minutes talking about the three games from Thanksgiving, plus answering your questions. Again, Black Friday edition of PFTPM, PFT Live every weekday, Megapix podcast tomorrow afternoon. Chris and I are going to pick all the games for week 11. It is already week 11. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. We'll talk to you soon. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.